35 years ago, a Durham woman called 911 in the pre-dawn hours to report that she'd accidentally shot her husband with a gun he was keeping underneath his pillow. While police thought it was strange that someone was sleeping with a loaded weapon, the wife's explanation seemed plausible. After all, she was a gainfully employed upper-middle-class woman who attended church regularly with her husband and two sons. It wasn't until they learned that the woman's first husband died in a similar manner almost 10 years earlier that they realized they might have to take a closer look at the man's death. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for True Crime in the Carolinas. Episode 53, Murdered for Money, The Crimes of Barbara Steger. At the end of last year, I shared an episode titled Two Wives, Two Deaths, featuring a man named Tim Boskowski and his two wives that died in mysterious drowning incidents. He was later convicted of murder in both of their deaths. Today's episode could also be titled, Two Husbands, Two Deaths, and the case created a media circus around the central character, a woman named Barbara Steger. When I was in high school, I read the book about this North Carolina true crime story titled, Before He Wakes, written by North Carolina author Jerry Bledsoe. I reread it again recently and wanted to share the details in today's episode. I think you'll find those details fascinating if you aren't already familiar with it. Most of what has been shared in the media about Barbara Steger revolves around the death of her husband, Russ, because that is the only one she was convicted of. But since Bledsoe's book shared a lot of the details about her first marriage and death of a man named Larry Ford, I wanted to start with this one. Barbara Terry was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. She met Larry Ford in 1967 when she accepted a partial scholarship to Appalachian State University known then as Appalachian State Teachers College, in Boone, North Carolina. She had been raised in a strict Southern household with social mores dictated by the Baptist Church. While Barbara was described as shy and studious during her high school years, friends and acquaintances could tell she was eager to experience a bit of independence and freedom during her time at college. The following are details shared in Jerry Bledsoe's book. During her freshman year, Barbara was rooming with a young woman named Laura from the mountains of western North Carolina, and Larry Ford, a sophomore who hailed from Colfax outside of Greensboro, was the roommate of Laura's boyfriend, Steve. They soon began dating. Larry had never had a serious girlfriend before and was known as a dependable and responsible young man who had also achieved the rank of Eagle Scout while in high school. His parents worked hard to be able to help save the money to send him to college, and friends felt like he was uncomfortable with the intensity of his relationship with Barbara. He tried to cool things off between them at one point, but Barbara had a depressive episode that landed her in the hospital, and she and Larry got back together shortly after she was released. Barbara became pregnant a few months later, 
and after discussing the situation with his mother, Doris, Larry said he wanted to do the right thing and marry Barbara before the baby was born. They were married in a small, intimate ceremony in Boone in May of 1968. They both got jobs that summer in the Greensboro area, purchased a small mobile home that they moved to a lot next to where Larry's parents lived, and bought a car. They saved what money they could so that Larry could return to college in the fall and continue living in the dorms. Barbara stayed behind so she could work a job filing insurance forms at Wesley Long Hospital in Greensboro until the baby was born. She ended up quitting her job later that fall, seeming unhappy with her situation while Larry was still living college life during the week and returning home on the weekends for visits. Their son Brian was born on December 2, 1968. Following his birth, Larry was able to take a job as a caretaker for a men's dorm at App State, and the job also provided a three-room apartment so Barbara and the baby could live there with him. They did have to share a bathroom with the other students on the hall. Barbara took a part-time job as a sales clerk at a local department store to help ends meet, but managing family life, a job, and classes took a toll on Larry. His grades began to slip, and he decided to attend summer school as a way to alleviate some of the pressure. Barbara continued working, later taking a job as a teller at a bank in Boone. What Larry came to realize after the marriage was that Barbara's sexual appetite surpassed his, and he was often embarrassed by her brazen and provocative behavior towards him in front of his parents and younger sister. She also seemed to have a flair for the dramatic, telling Larry about the men who flirted with her at the bank, as well as a boss who often made inappropriate comments to her. He began to question whether these stories were real or embellished. Larry finished up his coursework, and the family moved back to Greensboro to live with his parents while they both worked, and Larry found a school that would allow him to complete his student teaching requirements. This was during the time period where the draft still existed, though, and Larry worried he would be drafted. He decided to join the Marine Reserves, leaving Barbara and their son with his parents while he completed basic training out in San Diego, California. During that time, Barbara would often leave Brian in the care of her in-laws to go out at night, returning relaxed and happy. At one point, she said she had secured a job at a new bank and showed off a $300 cash advance and new sheets and pillowcases she said she had received as part of her incentive package. The Fords were skeptical, but they were happy when she said they would have to move to an apartment in High Point so she could start her new job. When Larry returned from his reserves training, it was too late to begin his student teaching, so he took a retail job to help pay the bills. They settled into a quiet life in their apartment complex, but mutual friends always felt like Barbara was dissatisfied with her status in life and wanted more. She enjoyed spending money so much that his family worried they wouldn't be able to live within their means. Larry took up karate in his downtime and enjoyed it. They eventually purchased a new three-bedroom house in Randolph County, and again, Larry's parents worried that the two were spending too much money furnishing the house and upgrading the appliances for newer, more expensive models that Barbara wanted. Larry began working on his student teaching at a local elementary school, but grew drawn and subdued. He'd been hearing rumors for years about Barbara possibly having extramarital affairs with customers from her bank, and at only 25, his parents said his hair had begun to turn gray. They were surprised when Barbara and Larry announced she was pregnant in 1973 and assumed the two had worked out their problems. 
Though Larry had finished up his student teaching and received his degree, he ended up taking a job at an electrical insulation company in High Point, which provided him with a more lucrative salary and good benefits. Their second son, Jason, was born in July of 1974. Things between Larry and Barbara did not improve, however, and he took up taekwondo lessons in his spare time. Rumors about Barbara's affairs with customers at her job continued, and she unexpectedly took both boys and left Larry in late 1974, moving into her own apartment. Jerry Bledsoe shared in Before He Wakes that Barbara had begun an affair with a younger co-worker that she hoped to marry. Larry filed for a legal separation, and it was only then that he realized how far in debt the couple was. Barbara received full custody of the children, her car, and child support from Larry. He could only see the children one weekend each month, one week for Christmas vacation, and one week during the summer. He also got the bills, the house, and the unpaid mortgage. Barbara's affair fizzled out, and she left her job at the bank and moved back to Durham to be closer to her parents. According to his parents, Larry was distraught. Even with all the problems he'd had with Barbara, he wanted his family back together. He believed their children needed both a mother and a father. He traveled to Durham to try and reconcile with Barbara, but by then she'd taken a new job at Duke University Medical Center and had no interest in returning to Randolph County. He persisted, though, and a few months later, she agreed to move back in with him and bring the children. Though the couple stayed together for the next few years, Barbara's erratic behavior and spending did not change. She took a job with a couple of different manufacturing companies in High Point, where more allegations of affairs took place, and then she took classes to get her real estate broker's license. She spent her first few months of work in and out of the office, talking about being close to making sales, but never actually making any. She earned no paychecks. Meanwhile, Larry struggled to pay the bills, proudly earned his black belt in Taekwondo, and became increasingly unhappy with the state of his marriage. At almost 1 a.m. on March 22, 1978, Barbara telephoned 911 and said her husband had been shot. Upstairs, first responders found 29-year-old Larry Ford lying on the bed in the master bedroom, face up, dressed in pajamas. The covers were pulled up over him. There was dried blood on his pajama top. He was deceased. There was a small bullet hole in his chest and very little blood. Under the covers, near his left hip, was a loaded clip for a semi-automatic pistol. A 25 caliber pistol was on the carpeted floor beside the bed. Barbara told the first deputy on the scene that Larry had been tossing and turning in the bed due to a taekwondo injury he had received earlier that evening. She offered to go sleep on the couch downstairs to give him more room in the bed. Not long after, she was awakened by a loud noise that she thought was a picture falling off a wall, but when she checked on it, that wasn't the source of the noise. She said she went upstairs and found Larry lying on the bed, gasping for breath. She assumed he had picked up the gun to examine it and accidentally shot himself. Barbara had bought the gun the day before the shooting because she told coworkers and Larry that she thought someone had been following her home. She asked her pastor to be a character witness for her application, and a friend and coworker had showed her how to load and fire the gun. At the time of Larry's death, Randolph County did not have a lot of resources to investigate suspicious deaths. 
The responding deputy should have called in a detective from the Randolph County Sheriff's Department in Asheboro, but he didn't do that. Based on Barbara's story, no one on the scene believed Larry had intentionally taken his own life, and instead they believed the shooting was accidental. The medical examiner said he would look at the body at the hospital rather than on the scene. The county emergency services director wrapped Larry's hands in clean plastic bags to preserve evidence before he was taken to the morgue. The county medical examiner decided not to perform an autopsy and ruled it an accidental death. But two weeks later, results of a powder residue test performed in a state lab determined Larry had not fired a gun. In May of 1978, his body was exhumed for an autopsy, but by then it was too late. Mold had already begun growing on the body, and there wasn't any gunpowder residue near the wound that could be analyzed. Larry Ford was reburied. The district attorney at the time didn't believe there was enough evidence to charge Barbara with the crime. She received more than $100,000 from Larry's life insurance policy, which included a double indemnity clause for accidental death. She would also receive more than $800 a month in Social Security payments from Larry's account. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. A few years ago, I came across a woman named Erin Sanderson on Instagram, and once I saw her demo the skincare products she had created, I decided to give them a try. I was hooked from the first drop. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil. The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalene Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties, so it's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamin E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Altogether, they are the literal dream team of skincare. Since I began using these products, I hardly wear foundation anymore. I start my day with pre-cleanse oil and my daily cleanser of choice, put on my own moisturizer, and layer it with a few drops of hydrating beauty oil. Then I put on whatever eye makeup I'm wearing that day, lipstick and loose powder. That's all. I can't believe how bright and flawless my skin looks since starting these products. Do you want to try out these products for yourself? Go to shopxerin.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. I'll put the link in the show notes. Next, I'd like to talk about WOW Women on Writing. Are you looking to level up your writing or learn a new skill? Whether you focus on nonfiction or are more inclined to creative writing or want to learn how to put together a digital portfolio of your writing, WOW Women on Writing can help. Are you interested in podcasting? On March 22nd, I'm hosting a 90-minute webinar titled, You Can Start a Podcast. During this webinar, offered through Zoom, you will learn the benefits of creating your own podcast, materials you need to get started, how to develop content that will keep listeners coming back for more, and ways your podcast can create supplemental income. I'll share examples of different types of podcasts, how to decide on a format, 
ways to handle the technology necessary for creating a podcast, how to develop your first few episodes, promotion and monetization ideas, and ways you can repurpose your podcast content. All written materials and resources are provided by me. I'll provide a handout with information discussed in the webinar, along with suggestions for a few different types of podcasts to explore. The session will conclude with a 15-minute Q&A. Best of all, this webinar only costs $35 and is limited to 20 students, so reserve your spot today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classroom tab. I'll also post a link in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. I wanted to share the story of Larry Ford's unresolved death because it shows a pattern of behavior from Barbara Terry Ford. In her second marriage to a man named Allison Russell Steger III, or Russ, as his friends and family called him, she would go on to repeat the excessive spending, living beyond her means, telling of tall tales, except this time she took it up a notch by also simultaneously cultivating an image of a devoted Christian Southern woman. Russ Steger also died in what his wife called an accidental shooting, except in Russ's case, she admitted to pulling the trigger. I believe if law enforcement hadn't been made aware of the suspicious death of Barbara's first husband, Larry, they might not have known to dig as deep into Barbara's background during the course of the investigation. Barbara made the decision to move the boys back to Durham after Larry's death. She met Russ Steger, a local high school PE teacher and baseball coach, when she went to look at a house he was putting on the market after his divorce from his first wife, Jo Lynn Snow. Instead of purchasing his house, she moved into another home in Russ's neighborhood, and they began a serious relationship almost immediately. Russ wanted to be a father to Barbara's two young sons, and they were married on March 17, 1979. It was just a few days before the anniversary of Larry's death. While they seemed perfectly happy at first, Russ's parents were concerned about both Barbara and Russell's love of spending money. It seemed Barbara had met her match. Russ wasn't like Larry, who constantly worried about money and living within their monthly budget. Barbara and Russ soon bought a new house together and set about remodeling it. They both purchased new cars and expressed interest in buying a beach house. They loved going shopping for clothes together and even bought matching Rolex watches at one point. With Barbara working as a secretary, and Russ as a high school teacher and coach, it was easy for people to wonder how they could afford all the extravagances. Russ officially adopted Brian and Jason, and Barbara applied to legally change the last name of both boys. Larry's parents had tried to maintain contact with them, but Barbara worked hard to prevent the lines of communication from remaining open. Barbara and Russ became regular members of Russ's church, At one point, Barbara went to work for one of their friends they knew from church, a man named Harry Welch, who worked as the general manager for a local country music radio station. Russ had mentioned to Harry that Barbara had worked as a real estate agent in the past, and Harry offered to let Barbara work as a sales rep at the radio station. She would draw a small weekly salary as an advance against commissions until she could get clientele established. She quickly turned in notice at her part-time secretarial job. As with her real estate job, she often talked about accounts she was getting ready to land that never materialized. She soon put their friend in an awkward position because he regretted having to advance her a salary while she wasn't producing any new prospects for the station. 
She also told people she was writing a book about her first husband's untimely death. In early 1982, Russ and Barbara told Harry Welch and his wife Terry that she had sold her book to Doubleday and would be receiving an advance of $400,000. The book would be called Untimely Death. But Barbara wouldn't show anyone even part of the manuscript. Russ hadn't seen it either. Harry was relieved, though, when Barbara told him she would have to quit her job at the radio station to focus on promotion for the book. She hadn't made a single sale in her entire time there, and he would have had to fire her if she hadn't left on her own. Barbara presented a letter bearing the letterhead of Doubleday and Company, citing the details of her contract to the couple's bank, seeking a substantial loan. But when months passed and no other news about the book came up, Russ and Barbara's friends called the publishing house to find out the projected date of the book so they could plan a party for her at their country club. They discovered that the editor listed on the Doubleday letter Barbara showed everyone did not exist. She had forged the letter and there was no book deal. Russ was floored when his friends told him about it. He also hadn't known Barbara could quit the radio station. She'd been telling him she was going to work every morning. He was so embarrassed, he and Barbara left their church to begin attending Barbara's childhood church. While Russ was beginning to become aware that Barbara had a habit of lying about their finances, writing bad checks, and taking out loans to cover other loans, he loved her and wanted to keep their family together. Mutual friends believed Barbara had lied to Russ about exactly how much money she had received from Larry's life insurance policies. Things came to a head when they had a family meeting with both of their parents, and Russ insisted on taking over the bill paying himself. They quit their pricey country club and moved to a smaller house. They put their beach cottage at Long Beach on the market. Russ's parents helped them pay off some of their larger bills to staunch the financial bleeding. They also paid for a post office box where the bills could be sent for Russ to easily access. He was the only one who had the key. But on February 1, 1988, Barbara made an early morning phone call to 911, very much like the one from March 22, 1978. There'd been an accidental shooting. 40-year-old Russell Steger had been shot and needed an ambulance immediately. When police arrived, Barbara told them Russ slept with a loaded gun under his pillow for protection. Early that morning, she had heard her younger son get up to get ready for school and was afraid Russ would think it was an intruder. She went to move the gun from underneath the pillow, and it went off, shooting him in the back of the head. Russ was still alive and taken to a nearby hospital, but died a few hours later from his injury. At first, police believed her story, but his family and close friends were suspicious. Russ was in the Army Reserves and knew better than to sleep with a loaded gun underneath his pillow. Russ's first wife, Jo Lynn Snow, went to the police and told them Russ had been confiding in her about the state of his marriage. He was unhappy with their financial troubles, had caught Barbara cheating on him, and was worried she might try to harm him. He was staying with her because of their sons while he tried to figure things out. When she mentioned Barbara's first husband had also died in an accidental shooting, that made Sergeant Rick Buchanan sit up and take note. Joe Lynn added that a few months before Russ died, he told her not to be fooled if anything ever happened to him. He said his wife was clever and could make it look like an accident. From there, Rick Buchanan sprung into action, 
sending Russ's body to the University Hospital in nearby Chapel Hill for an autopsy and reading what he could about the investigation of Larry Ford's death. He was stunned to discover Russ had also died as a result of a gunshot from a 25 caliber gun. He discovered the Stegers did not have record of a 25 caliber gun registered. He wondered if it was the same gun that killed Larry Ford. A few days after the shooting, Sergeant Buchanan asked Barbara if she would mind reenacting what had happened so they could videotape it. She agreed. The autopsy showed that the trajectory of the bullet had been downward. This contradicted Barbara's account that she had accidentally fired the gun while lying next to Russ in the bed. Ballistic tests showed that pulling the trigger on that particular 25 caliber model would require four pounds of pressure, way too much to have occurred accidentally, as Barbara contended. On April 18, 1988, 39-year-old Barbara Steger was charged with first-degree murder and had her bail set at $250,000. Her defense attorneys asked that her bail be reduced to $50,000, but a superior court judge refused the request. After excessive coverage in the local news, the trial venue was moved from Durham to Lee County in Sanford after Barbara's defense team argued that publicity had made finding impartial jurors in Durham County impossible. During the trial, a handwriting expert with the State Bureau of Investigation testified that Barbara appeared to have forged Russ's signature on checks to herself in the days before he died. The expert testified that a $1,500 check made out to Barbara Steger from Russ's account on January 29, 1988, showed enough similarities with her known handwriting to warrant a high degree of belief that it could have been written by her. He also found another $500 check from Russ's state credit union account that appeared to have been forged by Barbara. It looked like she had forged Russ's signature in order to endorse a U.S. Treasury check for $179. She deposited all these checks at Wachovia Bank on February 2nd and 3rd. He was shot to death on February 1st, 1988. A Wachovia Bank employee testified that Barbara had applied for a loan in October of 1987 and had missed a few payments. When the employee called Barbara about the status of that loan, Barbara shared that she and her husband were having some problems related to another female. Jurors also learned Barbara had requested another loan renewal in January of 1987 and asked that payment requests be sent to her parents' home because she didn't want someone at home to know about the loan. Barbara stood to collect more than $170,000 in Russell Steger's life insurance. And in perhaps the most strange turn of events, one of Russ Steger's former students found a small microcassette recorder in one of the school's locker rooms about 10 months after Russ died. On tape, a voice reportedly belonging to Russ said the date was three days before his death. He discussed his wife's infidelity and how he was growing suspicious that her first husband's death hadn't been an accident. He also stated that Barbara had been trying to wake him up in the middle of the night to take sleeping pills. He didn't understand that, because he wasn't having trouble sleeping. He wanted this information on record in case anything happened to him. Barbara's trial began in May of 1989. Details of Larry Ford's death were admitted as part of the prosecution, although Barbara has never been officially charged with the crime. The voice recording was also admitted, 
with Russ's friends and family telling the court they believed it was his voice. Barbara's defense attorney tried to cast doubt on the authenticity of the tape, saying where and when it was found appeared to be suspicious and a little too convenient. When the jury went into deliberations, they returned with a verdict in less than an hour. After Barbara Steger was convicted in the murder of her husband, Larry Ford's mother said, The thing we want you to know is that we have now found the answers to 11 years of wondering. A few days later, the same jury deliberated Barbara's fate. Her defense attorney addressed them by saying, There's no useful purpose to kill her. She's not an aggressive person who wants to pick a fight with someone. She's a trembling 40-year-old woman who has a serious personality flaw. The jury sentenced her to a death sentence, and the presiding judge set the date for a mere two months later. The death sentence ended up being overturned by the North Carolina Supreme Court on a technicality, and Barbara instead received life in prison with the possibility for parole. She is currently at the North Carolina Correctional Institution for Women in Raleigh. She was last denied parole in 2018. However, in 2017, the News and Observer in Raleigh reported that Barbara is allowed off-site visits as long as she is with a prison-approved sponsor. 74-year-old Barbara has been spotted having lunch at sit-down restaurants in the area. Her outings are part of a community leave program that is designed to give North Carolina prison inmates a sense of the world they've been locked away from during their incarceration. Before He Wakes received mixed reviews when it came out. I found it on the app Hoopla, which I used to read books for free through my local library, as I'd given away my original copy years ago. I feel like Jerry Bledsoe did a good job describing Barbara's early life, her childhood growing up in Durham, her family dynamics, as well as the introduction to both her first and second husbands. He also painted what I felt like was a balanced portrait between Barbara and Russ Steger. Together, the two longed to become a power couple, respected in both their community and church, with all the materialistic trappings to match. Their parents had to help bail them out of financial trouble more than once, and they both appeared to be addicted to spending money and making lavish purchases on things like automobiles, real estate, boats, clothing, and jewelry. Author Jerry Bledsoe also discussed how they had both made mistakes in their adult lives, Barbara with her numerous affairs and out-of-control spending, and Russ by dating a young woman who was still in high school at the end of his marriage to his first wife. It also gave a detailed overview of Barbara's relationship with her first husband, Larry Ford, his death, and the subsequent investigation into Russ Steger's death. Where I felt like the book got bogged down was during the numerous courtroom scenes. While some of the information was interesting, I felt like the meticulous details from everyday jury selection to her conviction slowed the pace of the story down. But in all fairness, I do realize the complexity of conducting all the interviews and compiling research necessary for the book and think the author did a good job in presenting all of the information. It was the last 25% of the book I felt like could have been condensed a bit. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of True Crime in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. We also have a new website for the show that I'd love for you to check out 
at missinginthecarolinas.com. I currently don't receive any compensation for this podcast, so every little bit helps me continue producing new content. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com, as well as SkinX Aaron. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.